No, that's no. I don't. I don't know what he means. <laughs> I'm assuming he, he means something else. No, he means just that. Yeah, um, and, and the answer is no. Egyptian is older than Semitic. Yeah, and so uh, and, it, and even when say Semitic, you know, I saw people don't really understand who that who was the Canaanites. You know, and what I try to do is explain people when we talk about the Canaanites or the quote-unquote Hebrew people, we have to look at them the way that this country that we live in was founded. This country, George Washington was an officer in the British Army, right? And he and other people were disgruntled because they were, they were not allowed to keep their profits. And so they broke away from the British and formed their own government, right? And so when we look at... <laughs> You know, and this is why I say the the, the, the the Bible is historical fiction and nationalist propaganda, right? And again, this is not my area of focus. And I generally don't even comment on stuff, particularly with in an audience like this where we have people who are reading some of the ancient scripts and have some foundational or methodological, methodological understanding of how this thing works, you know, but if you look at the, 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 the Canaanites and the so-called Phoenicians, who are nothing but Canaanites, all right, we have to see them in the same way of what how this country was set up. All right. And that's where people don't understand that level. I'm pretty sure so I can get into it a little deeper. But we go into a lot of things, a lot of things in the book that are new that nobody else has ever really said at that time. And of course, Asar has agreed to um, um, to submit a chapter for our upcoming um, edited book. Can I speak for a few seconds? Sure, brother Reggie. All right, I appreciate it. So I wanna, um, I wanna say one thing and then I'll go back to Divine Prospect's uh, question, right? Uh, there's a problem, the, uh, there's, a, there's several problems with the book. And, it, and it, it, it really stems from Osei. So Osei seems to be a Akan nationalist. Yes. He says, uh, without any references, without any, any information, any footnotes, he says, he says something like this. He says, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians from the Bible. If Amen is an Akan word, then of course, this is how he talks. The icon originated from ancient Egypt. He says that. The icon are the people who originally owned Amun as their god. The icon were the people who built the pyramids. The icon were the people who gave as a gift the knowledge of science, mathematics, religion, philosophy, medicine, etc., to the so-called modern world. Now and then he prints his name. We routinely beat up people that make statements but, like But this. you know that, wait, 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 um, Brother Reggie, you're taking, when we started it off, right, in the no, book, I, and you, didn't not, skip, let me speak. you didn't skip well, all the way over the section that we dealt with. Right. Let him speak, let him speak, let him finish. Go ahead, Reggie. I'm not talking about you. I'm oh, not talking okay. about Dr. Uh, Issa, I mean, Dr. Faraji. I am saying, that I have experience with uh, with with local nationalists. I'm not going to say call them African nationalists, right? 
and they like to attribute all the greats into their culture. Yes. Not yes. saying, and they don't. They want to go straight from one place to another place without everything else in between. So that's completely unacceptable, especially when you don't. You can't. You you can't argue with me if he didn't put any footnotes. You can't. It has no, nothing to do with your work. That's what we did. What we did was edited. We edited Jose's <laughs> ten-page pamphlet, and we brought some scientific understanding to what he was trying to argue to see if it was even any validity at all to what he was arguing. Now, we can't take away Ose because he's the first to ever bring this up. How did the Amin get to West Africa? Why is it so common in Ghana? That's his argument. Yeah, but that's, so like the more, but that's not the argument that the Moors give. Yes, and this is Hold on, Reggie, Reggie, Reggie. I think you're skipping. I think Reggie, you're skipping over a fundamental fact that this was a pamphlet, not an article, <laughs> not a book. It was a pamphlet, and in pamphlets there are no footnotes. And so again, he took a pamphlet, and he already said from the beginning of the discussion that we no don't wholesale. Don't ever have footnotes. Listen. He said already. Wait, no, wait, hold up. Reggie, Reggie, shut up. Hey. You telling me shut up? Yes, because you talk when people are talking. Listen to no, what no, I'm I saying. I was talking first. You interrupted me. Listen, I said, excuse me, and you let me go. Okay, so so you, you don't interrupt me. Listen. Hey, it's a pamphlet. It's a pamphlet. And Dr. Issa already said from the beginning that they don't wholesale agree with. Um, say and that they 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 uh took a, a slightly different analysis and so you got to bring that into the context you know of what you're saying and so this was already mentioned but again we got to distinguish between a pamphlet a general pamphlet that someone was giving out versus a detailed book so they he was allowed to reprint the pamphlet and then they added their commentary in sources on top of the pamphlet and so I want to bring that context, you know, into the discussion okay, before people start going out willy-nilly. Let me respectfully get back to what I'm saying. Whether it's a pamphlet, it's an article, or it's a book, I was talking about specifically some of the issues that I had that are not referenced at all, whether it's a pamphlet or not. So there are some things that are speculative, right? Speculative. Now. I'm not, I didn't get to the part on Eman, right? Um, I'm not really going to, I'm not really going to handle that. I'm going to go, I'm going to go past to divine prospects because this is going to get a little, uh, a little problematic, right? Now, for divine prospect or anybody to say that something is proto-Semitic, well, they have to point to time periods and people. So there has to be a people uh, that at a given time you could point to were writing. Now, cuneiform and and Kemetic uh, or Nile Valley writing, the scripts, uh, maybe occurred maybe 100, 200 years apart as far as the information that we know. And there are two different 
uh, writing systems. Uh, uh, though though uh, they are, uh, they have some close links with pictorial, so we know that the people were uh, communicating. So you have Gunther Dwyer, who uh, has, based on uh, some pottery lids in uh, Abydos, basically uh, uh, shows how uh, Nile Valley writing occurred before the cuneiform. The people who say that, and so the people in that area, uh, the people uh, in the Levant, and uh, they were writing at best uh, versions of cuneiform when they got it. Now the first people who uh, originated that language were the people that they called the Sadikas, or you might call them the Sumerians. But they were sacked by a Semitic group called the Akkadians. Mm -hmm. And the Akkadians uh, sacked them, sacked the language or the written language, and then they inserted their concepts and ideas, and that civilization of the Sadiga seemed to have uh, disappeared. Now, in that area, oh, everyone oh. in that area was using cuneiform. So the uh, to show for someone to say that the metanetic comes from uh, uh, proto-Semitic would mean that the metanetic comes from cuneiform. That would be an argument that would have to be uh, that would have to be teased out. So I'll stop for a second. Please. Uh, well, can I can I hold on before we continue? Um, Reggie's confusing the situation here. He specific so. he specifically asked about. The Egyptian language has nothing to do with Sashmetanetra, which is the writing script. Did it come out of Proto-Semitic, which is a language group? And so they asked, yes, you are. And, and I'm, I'm, I need to clarify this for the people who are listening. The, the issue is that the Egyptian language, which is before Metanetra writing and or cuneiform writing, it, the writing and language are two solely separate things. And uh, did it derive did it derive from Proto-Semitic? So the answer is no. So Egyptian and Semitic languages are not even closely related, and this has uh, been established for a very long time, even since the time of Budge. And so, um, you know, Proto-Semitic uh, was a, a a language that was born in the Levant, uh, whereas the Egyptian language was born inside of Africa proper. Uh, somewhere in Central um, Africa, and it's older than Proto-Semitic. And you know the uh, the African speakers, you know, uh, more than likely, given the evidence, is what gave birth to Semitic. But Semitic. All right, all right. Peace, 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 and one love to everybody out there that's listening. This is your brother Garfi. I wanted to play a part of that presentation because. Um, that's going to lead into a lot of the ideas and questions that I might have today. And, um, hey, by the way, Alan Brown, peace to Alan Brown in the building. Peace to my brother, Asar Imhotep. Peace to Sister Monica, who's a part of my economic team, my team on Wednesdays, every Wednesday. And, um, and um, peace to all the listeners, man. We got 16 viewers so far. I know it's going to grow in a few. All right. Um, first of all, let me just introduce everybody. I said Alan Brown. Alan Brown, introduce yourself, please. 
Peace, peace, peace. Also known as Rob Bond. All right. Just listening in. All right. On to the cyber. All right. Um, my my special guest today, my teacher, my linguist, my new linguistic teacher, um, Asar Imhotep. How you doing, brother? Peace and blessings. I'm I'm doing well, man. Just uh, happy to be here. Uh, peace to your audience and peace to the members on the panel. All right, Sister Monica. How you doing, Sister? Introduce yourself. May peace, Garfield. Peace, Asar. Peace, Alan. Peace to the chat. Hey, let me ask you this, um, Monica. You are new to the whole. I don't know how new you are to linguistics, but I know you are taking um, Wajao's course. What was one of the biggest things for you to take his course? Have you ever taken a linguistic course before? I mean, we, we all did Spanish in high school. <laughs> but as far as linguistics, as far as, you know, deciphering Medjanetta and reading it and, and writing it, how, how has that been for you? Um, that's my first time, of course, I've taken foreign languages other than Spanish and, um, uh, and French, I, but to, to use a writing script, um, in, in the beginning, I would just listen. <laughs> I didn't mm -hmm. know what to do, what to think. And then it wasn't until, I mean, I think the course is like 12 weeks. I think probably when I got to probably the 11th week, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I went to the museum in New York. And mm -hmm. I was like, let me try to do this. And mm -hmm. um, I could identify, I can identify some of the the, uh, the the signs. And then once I, you but I, I had a greater appreciation for it, but um, I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, it can be, it definitely can be done. And the more, the more I do it every week, I get on the, uh, the Divine Wednesdays and the Freestyle Fridays. And then I'm, I'm understanding how, to recognize the groupings. So I understand the foundation of it all. And so now when I look at something, I can recognize some of the words of it. Uh, me and my friend, we both we both do it. She's much quicker than I am, but um, it definitely can be done. And it's, it's interesting because I've never done it. I've never looked at script or language in the manner in which I'm hearing it now. Sebu uh, Jao is a great teacher. He's very patient. And um, given the time and the patience, it definitely can be done. Okay. All right. All right. That's what's up. Um, mm, that's beautiful. All right. So let me introduce everybody to my brother, Asar. Um, the reason why I wanted to, Asar to come on, I don't know what he has prepared or whatever, but um, certain, certain things. One of the questions from that conversation with Reggie the other day was, I don't know how deep you can go into the methodology of 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 um putting a language together. I don't know if I don't know if we as an audience if we're even ready for that. How <laughs> what methodology you would use to show that um a language a written language existed before the actual before the actual evidence of the script. I don't know if mm -hmm. that's something that you think that a layman could understand or you could try to explain, but that would be the first question I have off the bat about linguistics. Okay. Um, I appreciate the question, first and foremost. The It, it really is a complex answer, mm -hmm. um, and it's something that I would have to demonstrate and show and um, at this moment, I'm not prepared for that question in terms of like a, a PowerPoint or something like that. That could be something that is shown uh, in the beginning. But 
uh, excuse me, at a later time. But to to answer it as simply as possible. When you start studying linguistics and you understand linguistic methods and certain theories and issues of linguistics, certain things, you know, become more intuitive to you as you uh, are, are, are more studied in the subject. And there are features of languages that are considered archaic and then you have a phenomenon called an innovation when we reconstruct languages first let me back up a little bit diachronic or historical linguistics is concerned is a branch of linguistics that is concerned with the relationships of languages and the reconstruction of the proposed parent language. The theory is this, and we kind of borrow terminology from the field of genetics. And that is, there are certain language groups that exist in the world. These language groups are relatively new and sound different from one another. But when we take a critical analysis of these languages and we set the features down side by side to each other and we analyze them critically, we know that we can demonstrate that these languages are related that this word in this one language is pronounced similarly or, or the same way as a word in this language and that we can see a system a systematic series of correspondences in terms of sound you know phoneme and vocabulary meaning semantics and we go through a series of tests. It's no different than any other type of uh, scientific field where we observe something, we have an observation, then we hypothesize a relationship between two or more languages, and then we do experiments. Uh, the main method of experimentation to help demonstrate the relationship between languages is something we call the historical comparative method. And this consists of a systematic comparison of, as I mentioned, uh, phonology, which is the sounds of the language, the uh, grammar, the syntax, the morphology of languages, and the semantics, the meanings of the terms. And if we find through our experimentation that the languages that we have examined are in fact uh, that there's enough evidence to support the fact that they are related, then we hypothesize even further that in order for these languages to be related, that means that there had to be a common parent language from which these proposed daughter languages derived. So what we, we do now is that we go through a series of 
what we call reconstructions. And we reconstruct the aspects of the languages that are reconstructable. And we propose a what we call a proto-language, that this is the hypothetical proto-language that we've reconstructed that helps to explain the, the innovations, the phenomena, the characteristics that are shared by all of these examined daughter languages. So given that there are certain features, for example, that we may reconstruct that are present in certain languages, but not in others within the daughter languages, we can see that certain features are older and died out and or that certain languages innovated certain features in the language. And so by looking at those characteristics and those features that we have deemed as a result of the historical comparative method as archaic features, we can tell if one language is older or carries older features than another. So for example, you know, um, the oldest attested Semitic language is Akkadian. That does not mean that Akkadian is the oldest Semitic language. All it means is that the, the oldest written down language of Semitic that we have fully is Akkadian. But the Arabic language, although it uh, produces a writing script years, you know, centuries later, it has some of the more archaic features as argued by Semeticists. So if we want to understand a little bit of how the proto-Semitic language was probably um, orchestrated, to say, you know, for uh, lack of a better term, we can study Arabic, although Arabic isn't attested until many centuries, thousands of years later, past the oldest, you know, um, Semitic language that is attested, uh, AKA Akkadian. So we, we look for these features and, you know, even within the African languages as we deal with, for example, the model as constructed by Dr. Theophila Wabinga in a language family called uh, Negro Egyptian, which was enhanced and, and solidified more by the linguist Jean-Claude Mboli, who has determined that the Bantu languages, although argued in the, in the Joseph Greenbergian models as being one of the youngest languages, in fact, is one of the oldest series of languages. And Bantu preserves more of the Negro Egyptian features than any of the, the language groups in the Negro Egyptian family. This is one of the reasons, you know, even before I came across uh, Brother Jean-Claude Mboli's 2010 text, I had come to the same conclusion just with my comparisons between Bantu and ancient Egyptian. Because Bantu can explain ancient Egyptian and features that are fossilized in ancient Egyptian. 
versus uh, ancient Egyptian trying to explain Bantu. And the only way that this can happen is that Bantu um, is older than Egyptian and that certain features are fossilized in Egyptian. And another clue is that there has been studies, you know, all the going back all the way to the early 1920s, 1930s between uh, Bantu languages and Sumerian. And some of the latest texts, actually, I'm not sure if um, Hermel Hermstein's is the latest. I need to check the copyright date. It may be 2012. It may be the latest. Um, but uh, Jean-Claude and Boley also analyzes, you know, Negro Egyptian with uh, Sumerian. But all the evidence points to that Sumerian and Proto-Bantu languages derived from the same source. And this informs us that Bantu has to be older than Egyptian, for example, or a very old language, because Sumerian is attested as early as, you know, 2,900 to 3,000 uh, BCE. And for Bantu and Sumerian to have a common parent, they had to have existed in Africa, of course, at a time prior to that, which, um, you know, we have to account for times for migrations, you know, for the proto-Sumerian speakers to enter into uh, what is now Iraq and exist there and go through its own history with the native folks who are already there. And so there's certain clues, certain deductive things that we can do in certain other outside evidence that allows for us to make certain claims. And so um, without trying to get too deep, I hope that I explained it in a way that gives some kind of clarity and clue to your question. All right. Well, well, salt. yeah, go ahead, Alan. Yeah, yeah, piece of salt. Can you go in Please. more on the um, the competitive method on on what that is? Because from my understanding, what you said in brief to look at words or cognate words and compare them to each other in order to find or the apparent language. So if we're speaking about language and something being written, it has to be in order to compare a word written or we heard it in order for us to compare it. Correct. Can you do that? How do how do how does that work? How do you do that without having how can you do that if there's no written language? Like in most of our African language, we don't see it till later, later, later. For instance, in case of the Bantu. How okay. how do we do that? Well, there uh, see what you what there are several steps that are involved. Of course, if a language does not have a, a is not attested in written form uh, historically, it is it is the job of a linguist to go amongst the living tradition and to describe the language 
and provide information about the language so that we can utilize that information for comparisons. So if there's a, a hypothetical language in Central Africa uh, that hasn't been attested to before, um, but it's clear that there are people who actually speak this language. What I would do as a linguist is to go and live amongst the people. I would learn the language from them. And I would assign, I would have been trained to assign phonetic values to the, the sounds that are present in the language. So I describe the phonemes that are present, the phonetics that are in, uh, present of the language. Then I start to learn, in that process, I'm learning words, sentences, and of course, grammar and syntax. So I write down examples from the language to show how the language is structured. I write down a vocabulary list and ultimately create a dictionary you know, with uh, ideally all of the words that are present in the language. From there, now that I have a body of, of work and that I, I have systematized and organized and described the language, I can now compare the language to other languages that have gone through that same process. And so although we cannot attest historically to a language that has been written um, because it hasn't it doesn't have a writing script it hasn't been written we can still reconstruct the parent language by describing the languages as we um, view them now now when you do that you discover that of course certain languages are related but that certain languages may hold on to certain features that are archaic that another language may no longer adhere to. And you would only know that this one language had these features if you um, be only because you've uh, studied some other languages. You know, for example, when you want to say, like, for example, the word ma'at. There's, a, you know, the word ma and the word ma'at is a word for lead, to guide. But if you suffix the word, excuse me, if you suffix the phoneme I behind the word ma'at or ma'ati, you know, ma'at or ma or ma'ati, ma'at, it's pronounced ma'ati. And when you put that suffix to it, it now, uh, it now indicates that it's, we're dealing with a person. That's a grammatical feature in Egyptian. And so now the word, you know, lead or to guide now becomes the word for a leader, the chief. It is now personified. That same grammatic feature exists in Bantu languages. So if I have a word, you know, bongo or bangi, um, excuse me, banga, which means to search, to find medicine or something like that. Then I say mubongi, mubangi, 
that same eye actually is two is two morphemes that give the same indication the mu prefix and then that i suffix and so that i suffix that is present in egyptian is also present in bantu and we can tell that you know these are shared features but the bantu languages have an innovation that the egyptian doesn't and so that move prefix that i mentioned earlier is is a kind of uh re retention and innovation because it's a series of prefixes on the nouns that we call classifiers noun classifiers that isn't present in egyptian and so while they both retain one feature the Bantu languages has another feature that the Egyptian doesn't. And so um, they, the written language, which is Egyptian, you know, can provide some information about the Bantu or reaffirm that it's an old feature, that this isn't something, this I isn't something that is, you know, innovated in Bantu because Egyptian and Bantu have it the only explanation that we can do, we can um, we can argue based on the evidence is that Egyptian. This feature is inherited in both languages, you know, um, and that it was present in the Proto language, you know, in Proto Negro Egyptian. And so it's it's, it's certain features, and I wish, um, and I have something on my other computer that I can kind of show you. Um, you know, has matter of fact, let me see, because I'm, I may go, I'm, 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 a, I, I may have something, but I'm, a, I'm gonna be borrowing something from Jean Claude and Boley because uh, I invited him on my YouTube channel to, uh, to give a lesson on, on, on linguistics as understood in his text. And, and I think that this will, you know, uh, help you. So I, I know I have right. it featured on on my website, and so I'm gonna find it. I'm gonna put myself on mute, and you know, y'all can talk and ask questions, and then I'll come back so you can visually see exactly what I'm talking about. So, right. okay, hold on one sec. All right. In the meantime, um, let me see. I had something I wanted to bring up, but I think it's on another hangout. But um, linguistics um, is, is very, is very, very, it's a, <laughs> it's a tricky, tricky. You got to be a scientist at this, man. You got to be a scientist, man. You can't be no regular Joe talking about how you're going to reconstruct languages and all that craziness. You know, you got to be really deep into it, man. Um, I, I, I had actually had a video of Asar I wanted to play. Um, you, know, you know what? Let me play it in the meantime. He don't even have to address it, but. Um, I gave a presentation a couple months ago on the Maroons, and there was a video that I played that um, Asar had a video called The Blackness, The Crisis of African-American Identity and the Bacala of North America. And um, let me just play a piece of it, what I use. I don't know if he, he actually know that I actually use this in my presentation, but it was about the whole Moorish thing, and you know that was going around for a little bit. You know, but check this, check this out, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, in, in the great <clears throat> um, also, 
the vast majority of the Ameri- uh, African Americans, and again, I just said that, um, are not related to the Berbers. Um, Berbers were not calling themselves Moors um, for the for the most part, and we'll get into that why. And um, but the Moors are essentially Muslims is is sacrilege, and so you know these are the people in which we we come from, and so we always want to anchor ourselves you know, in our historical tradition. <laughs> but at the same time, um, we don't want to necessarily try to reduplicate what is there because each one of these countries and nations uh, have developed on their own, in their, in their own history, in their own unique way for quite some time. And so with African-Americans arriving from all of these different places we cannot just use one culture and one label you know from this area from these areas to identify with because it would neglect you know all of the other spaces in which you know uh, we derive and those cultures which culminated which helped to develop the african-american uh, you know uh, sense of self and and cultural nuances and things of that and so when it comes to the question of Moors, for instance, you know, there's very many problems with trying to identify ourselves as Moors. Um, or, and the same thing could apply to Hebrew Israelites or tribe of Shabazz. Um, you know, with the tribe of Shabazz, it's, uh, you know, we'll get to that later. But, you know, <clears throat> here's some of the fundamental issues with identifying with the Moors. One, the Moors are essentially Berbers, and these are the people of North uh, Africa, and these people were not uh, involved in the transatlantic slave trade in terms of their people being stolen and brought here to the United States. And so with the Moors having their foundation with the Berber people, um, these are people who were, uh, in, in the greater sense, unrelated to us. <laughs> um, also, uh, the vast majority of the Amer- uh, African Americans, and again, I just said that, um, are not related to the Berbers. Um, Berbers were not calling themselves Moors um, for the for the most part, and we'll get into that why. And um, but the Moors are essentially Muslims and associated with Islam. And so when you when you hear about this movement of Moors and things of this nature, it's always attached to Islam. And so it's, it's more so a religious movement trying to guise itself as a political sovereignty movement. Um, and so you would not hear, you know, many Moors outside of, you know, uh, and not connected to Islam. Um, secondly, there's no Moorish language. There's no Moorish religion. There's no indigenous art of Moors. There is no... You, you can't go to any library and, and read any grammar book on Moorish language and culture. It is a label that was applied to a people, but they didn't go around, you know, um, promoting this identity. There's no Moorish script. There's no, you know, there's no Moorish anything. The word more doesn't have a meaning, you know, to most folks outside of the Berber language. And, We'll get into that uh, a little later. Um, this causes other problems, you know, because no one can agree on what the word more means. You ask any more, what does more mean? And you would get a thousand answers 
while only asking maybe 10 people. Um, Cause there is no, they, they, they have not done the work in trying to ascertain what the word more means. And so they're trying to throw this label on us uh, and trying to force us and try to argue that we are Moors, but they can't even tell you what the word more means. And that's because the word more is not attached to a Moorish people in a Moorish language. You know, because you can't, you can't give us, you can't show us a Moorish book with a bunch of Moorish um, words. You can't give us a Moorish grammar. You can't give us what language family the Moors belong to. Because all of this is essentially an Islamic mood. Everything that is associated with the Moors is associated with Arabs and Islam and Semitic languages. You know, but this concept of more, it, it doesn't exist in real life. And, they, and, they, um, and it doesn't matter who you talk to. They will always give you the runaround on what this word more means. And then what they also try to do is find any word in the universe that has the, the letter or the phoneme M and the phoneme R in it and claim that that's what more is and that that's what the more means. And so that is methodologically flawed um, coming from a linguistic perspective. <clears throat> and because you can't identify what the Moorish language is, you can't identify what the word more means. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> to my Moorish family, I hope you don't. I, I saw. I don't know if you know that I used that in my presentation. Were you aware with? Were you aware of that? Uh -huh. You weren't. Okay. Uh -huh. I used it in my presentation when me and Ishmael had this little spat on the Amin Ra Squad channel about uh -huh. Moors, and uh, he was saying that the Maroons were Moors, and he brought this source, <laughs> this Islamic source, and I had to beat him up, and then um, I made this presentation on another channel. And that's when the day after he came out and said, I'm no longer, <laughs> I'm making a move in another direction. So, <laughs> so that presentation did a lot to the brother. Hey, I'll say it. It beat him up. It definitely beat him up because a lot of folks, let me tell you something right now, man. Uh -huh. he, he touched something that he shouldn't have touched. You don't, you're not from Jamaica. I'm from Jamaica. My mother is a historian and you're going to come tell me that the Maroons were Moors. You know, you can't, you can't do that. You can't do that. And then you're going to listen to a, to a woman who says the reason why she believes what she believes is because Allah told her. If you're going to use a yeah. source where Allah is the, is, the, is the person that gave them the information, come on, man. We better than that. We definitely yeah. better than that. All right, so moving on, man. Go ahead, go ahead, brother. You wanted to drop something on the... Um, I don't know if anybody in the audience have a question about the whole Moor thing. We could talk about that too. And the truth is there's no Moorish language. And that kills yeah. the whole argument. There's no Moorish yeah. religion. And if you want to talk, hey Alan, unmute your mic, man. Let, let's let's talk about some, some of these more God, some some of these Berber gods that we found out when we were researching oh. the Moors. You talk about Gerzil. Gerzil. I've never heard a Moor say they worship Gerzil. Eagle, <laughs> the god of rain, IGCU. Berber, all the other birds, they have a pantheon. They have a big pantheon. Their pantheon is very big. None <laughs> of those gods are mentioned at all. And mm -hmm. it's crazy because they attach Moabites to this. And we don't have no attestation of no migration or none of that to North Africa. The only people you can say of this is these so-called Phoenicians who are Canaanites. And they in Carthage and their god is Baal Haman. <laughs> what are you saying? Those are the Moors? 
because that's the people we have coming from that region over there that we can attest to. The major god of the Moabites is Shemash. And these dudes are sacrificing children, man. <laughs> ah, man, son, this is bad. That's bad. <laughs> what? What? Anyway, hey, and I'm gonna play this video. No, I'm not even gonna play it, man. I'm gonna leave that alone for today. I leave that for Lord Abba. But um, mm -hmm. there's a question about the homosexual aspect of Moors that was made by my brother Ishmael Bay, and I, I really want to hear Lord Abba's input on that because for someone to say I'm a Moor and we proud and I don't want to sugarcoat anything, we were really homosexuals at one point. We screwed children, and I mean, why would you even want to claim that? You know what I'm saying? But anyway, that's a whole other story, man. But go ahead, go ahead. The floor is yours, um, brother Asar. Go ahead, brother. I'm going to mute my mic. All righty. Uh, yeah, just briefly, you know, that's for that has been an issue for a number of years, trying to identify these these mores. And, you know, more and more as you talk to, the more confusing it gets. And so that's when you just have to, you have to ask the simple questions. Nothing really profound, just very simple. Where can I find a Moorish dictionary. Where can I find a Moorish grammar? What is the Moorish language and what language group does it belong to? We can start very simple, very basic right there. Is that to let us know, you know, who who the Moors are? But since no one can produce any of that, you have to assume that the Moors don't exist uh, fundamentally as a people, as a self-identifying people who have a uh, a history, uh, a land and language. And um, and so, you know, uh, I explained what I explained in that in that video, so I won't uh, go into any more details. But this is for um, Brother Allen. And so I'm going to share my screen now. And y'all let me know, uh, you know, if y'all can see uh, I can see it. Okay. <laughs> so on December 7th, 2014, uh, Brother Jean-Claude Mboli, you know, came on our, on my channel and um, did a, you know, a several hour lesson in uh, 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 historical comparative linguistics and the, the nature of the findings in his book, uh, The Origin of African Languages. Uh, which you can kind of see here at the bottom, uh, origin of African languages or origin de, langu de, de langues africaines, uh, essays on the application of the comparative method uh, to ancient and modern African languages. That's uh, my translation from French. <laughs> and so he has here 2011 in the book. This is a cover, the picture of the book. Um, and this is his book in one of the libraries in France, uh, next to these other, you know, great books on linguistics. Um, and so, um, just saying all that to say that this is not my slide. Uh, this, all credit goes to Brother Jean-Claude Mboli. But um, I'm just going to quickly go to, let me see. Okay. So you wanted to know, for example, now English, even though it historically doesn't have writing, you know, in modern day it has writing. And, and same thing with uh, French coming out of Latin, which is an Italic language in Indo-European. And so um, 
we can, we can demonstrate, for example, that the French and English languages have the same common ancestor. And so what I was talking about earlier is that, you know, once we have collected the data and we have assigned, you know, the phonemes and the, and the, the graphemes, which are letters, um, to represent whatever sounds, then we can, you know, uh, write them down or type them out side by side and do a systematic comparison. So we see here that, for example, in English with French words, wherever there is an F sound, it systematically and regularly corresponds to a P sound in the initial position uh, in the French language. And so what's in parentheses here is, the, is Latin. So remember that the French language comes out of Latin. Latin gives birth to French, Spanish, Portuguese, you know, and a few other uh, languages. They're all dialects of Latin. All right, so that's why we have Latin here because this is the actual attested um, in, in writing, you know, uh, the parent language of French. And so Indo-European has a unique uh, place in history because they do have some writings for the actual proto-language, which a lot of languages around the world do not have. So, so we see systematically here that there's father here, and um, in French is père, but in Latin is pater. So remember what I talked about earlier, where there are certain earlier features of a language where we could tell that something is older. One way that we can tell is that if you see a fuller form of a word versus a reduced form in another language, and we see a pattern, like we see here that, um, you know, as far as consonants is concerned, we, we consider this a cluster here, the TH. So, you know, one, two, three. And then we have here one, two, three. But in French, we only have one, two. So we assume off the back here that, that these are the older attested variants of the word and that French has an innovation where they lost the uh, intervocalic T that is present in the Latin language, but still present in English, you know, in, in father. So we have F, P, T, H, which is dropped, or the T is dropped in French, but the T is present in Latin. And then they all end in the consonant in R, right? And so we, we continue our comparison. The word foot with um, the French P, and like when like it's present in English as a loan word. So when your girl goes to the salon and gets a pedicure, that word ped is Latin for foot. But we see here regular correspondence, F, and the T sound is now corresponds with D in French and Latin. We have different vowels here, 
but the consonants is what we look at first because they they stay more consistent longer than vowels and so we have wolf and then we have loop and then we have lupus and so we we, we can see well, you know, for those who know Latin, we know that this is a suffix and that the, the root is, is loop. And we see it here in in uh, French, lu, um, because they don't usually pronounce their final consonants in French, but it's still present in a written form. But we notice in English that there's a prefix. And so the, the LF, so the L corresponds with L, but F, again, just like with F here and F here, corresponds with P. You see, in all positions, wherever there's an F in English, there's a P in French. And so wherever there's a T in English, there's a D in French. And so, you know, we can do this systematically going on and on and so when we examine these these words like mother mere mater again the same features the same system we see here is present you know um and so this is how you distinguish suffixes you know in languages as you can see here as for assault Sel, sal, you know, sisters, sir, and the sore. You know, there's there's certain um, correspondences here that you know um, that that we can see clearly. So the next thing we do is that we establish what is called sound laws. So after we we've, we've noticed that wherever there's an F here, there's a P. In, in in the vast majority of all of the compared, you know, um, vocabulary between English and French, respectively, we note this as a sound law. So English F corresponds to French and Latin P. The TH corresponds to French and Latin T. S corresponds with French. English S corresponds with French and Latin S. English T corresponds with French and Latin D. H with C, L with L, R with R, M with M, N with N, W with V, and then Y with J, which, you know, kind of has a Y sound uh, in these respective languages. So we've established these sound laws. So this is how we know that there's a loan word in English and how the word ped is borrowed into English in the word pedicure. Because the word for foot doesn't start with F in, in English. And so we know that that's a loan word into English because it doesn't obey the sound laws when we compare it to other languages. So this is one of the ways that you can tell if if uh, certain words are borrowed or not in the language. Okay, so, so that whole that whole process you just showed, right? Mm -hmm. So that is the same process you're saying, let's say if I use the sand people and their clicking languages. So you mm -hmm. have people that's there, even though it's not written, 
sounds of those words, they put, they write them down and they perform that method backwards. Basically. And so here's an oh. example. Here's an example here of exactly what you're talking about. So this is the Sango language in Central Africa, which does not have an attestation in uh, historically as a written form until the present day. And then with Middle Egyptian, which we only know based on the written form. And so what we can demonstrate is that the Sango language, a Bantu language in Central Africa is related to Middle Egyptian because we can establish sound laws on the words. So, you know, here's the, the ancient Egyptian word we pronounce as Ra in, in for sun and day. The same word in Shango is La. In e Egyptian, we had the word Irit for I. In Shango is Le. In uh, Egyptian, you had the word Pert which is a word for grain. Then you have the word le again here. So we could tell here that this P has been dropped. And although there's a T here, it's still present in Songo. However, it's not present as a phony. It's present as this uh, marker here in terms of a, a rising and low tone. So there's a feature in Songo where the, 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 the T suffix in Egyptian, you know, ends up being a tone marker in the Songo language. And so we continue, you know, uh, and, and that's, of course, if the, the word in Songo ends in a vowel. And so that's not the case here with the word nose. The T is still dropped because this, this is a grammatical suffix. But, um, and so this sound, which is H with the loop under it, you know, is just a regular H in Sango. So they say hong for, for nose, hong. It's a rising and low tone for nose. The, the, the T is still dropped, but if um, this was ended in a vowel, it would, it, we would know it indicated by a, uh, how should I say a a a tone mark on the um on the vowel? So we can see here again, you know, this word "set place" it's "set place." But you notice wherever there's a T and it ends in a vowel, we see this rising and low tone on the vowel. The word "netter" spirit is "toro" in Sango. This N is a prefix on the word "netter." It's still present in the Akan language. They say in Toro. But it's Tala in Yoruba, as in the word Obatala. But, um, you know, and then we have these examples here. And so we can go through the gamut. And, and we do just how we did with the Indo-European languages. We notice there is a sound law that is established. So... For example, this word rah here, this is actually a K or H sound, but it manifests itself as a rising and low tone A in Sango. So, you know, uh, here's, here's uh, uh, another example of that feature. So here's this graphene for that sound, 
which we say is Rach, is here also in this word Hakar. So here, and then we see that rising and um, falling tone uh, A. So we we've established, you know, and there's there's more examples, but you know, given space, we can uh, we only have a few examples here. So you know, uh, this corresponds uh, with the rising and uh, the rising and falling tone A in Songo. This grapheme here, which is a nasalized uvular trill, just corresponds with the A sound in um, in Songo. T in the initial position still remains T. So for this word, tar, toro, is uh, for earth, we say ta, but it's tar. Matter of fact, like when you say the word territory, that word tar, that ter in territory is this word here, is the cognate for this word here. But we see that T in the initial position renders T in Songo. However, T in the final position, as I mentioned earlier, is that uh, fall, that rising and falling E. And so this is a science. It, it is very meticulous and you got to pay attention to detail. And so this is how you can tell cognate words. And this is how you can tell very simply that the ancient Egyptian language has been deciphered. Because if, wow. if it hadn't been, if we, if it hadn't been deciphered, we would not be able to systematically establish these sound laws. It would be a bunch of gibberish. Yeah, that's deep. So with this, right? Uh huh. So I guess when we look at the sand people or the or the Co the Kozani tribes using genetics, that shows that these we we those are like one of the oldest people that we share with genetically. Than being that they have their Pacific language that is different than everyone else's language with those clicking sounds, then we could suppose or hypothesize that that's where the language comes from. Well, not necessarily. You know, I don't think we have enough evidence to argue that, you know, the rest of African languages is birthed out of the clicking languages. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because the clicking could be an innovation, it could be a recent innovation. Mm -hmm. You know, and one one hypothesis is that the clicking sounds developed because of the early hunter gatherers needed a way to communicate without scaring the game. So, you mm -hmm. know, when you when you're talking and you, and you, you say, you know, it, it's something that's low and blends enough well that it doesn't necessarily scare the game. But if you like, hey, yo, Ron, uh, there go a gazelle right there, you know, that that that. Uh, that scares the game away and so you you lose an opportunity to eat and so that's yeah, one of the major hypotheses and that that could be an innovation and so we we don't have enough evidence right. to make that argument you know uh completely now so right, so i hope deep, that man. this this, this that, that, you know, that definitely answered the question man that's deep debate yeah. over man there's no debate man. <laughs> it is no debate so. hey, gotta put that up there Alan, do me a favor. Put that video in the back chat, the one with the with the sand people, the one that you gave me, because I can't switch from Garfield to Dagger Squad um for for the, for the hangout. All right. I want I want the audience to see evidence of the clicking sound so that they know exactly what you're talking about. You know what I'm saying? Because I want them to see it. Hold on.
All right. In the meantime, um, yo, whoo, wow, you giving me a headache, bro. I don't know if I want you back. <laughs> no, nah, man. No, nah, that shit was that. Yo, son, that, that that was the answer that I had. That that was like, yo, but wait a minute, how you could say that <laughs> you can show a language without having it being written? Like, yeah. how you do that? What's the method? How you figure that out? If we don't have nothing written, how are you saying that this came from this? How? Yeah. Then you just showed it. Yeah, so that's why I said, like, I have to show it. It's better that I show it right. than try to articulate it because mm -hmm. it's something that you have to see. So once you're able to see it for yourself, then then it's, it's, it's no argument, right. you know, from, from that point. It's, it's like, okay, I understand now. So y'all are getting a sense of how historical comparative linguistics is done. And so that's just a brief, you know, that's just, that's, that's barely scratches the surface of all that is involved but you can at least get a sense of, you know, how this process is done. Mm -hmm. All so. right. Um, let me see right here. Let me see. Let me see if anybody got any questions. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, put, I'm putting it in the back now. I just don't know what minute is on. Right? I got it. I got it. Don't worry about it. Let's put it in the back and I, and I got it. Um, let me see what else I got to talk about real quick. Uh, I'll put it back there. Put it in the back chat. All right, cool. All right, because I was watching it, so it's like, it's, 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 is it a clicking sound thing? It just seems, I don't know, it, it just seems rare because the guy was trying to figure out the language and it was teaching him. And he was like, damn, they're teaching me how to read the um the sounds and everything. And it, it's not it's not an easy thing to understand, man. Those people... But it also could be a corruption too. So, you know, just to look on the other angle too. It could be a corruption. All right, hold on, let me find this right here. What's going on, Monica? You got a headache? <laughs> Monica about to quit. Monica, where you at? I'm Wake listening. up, Monica. I'm not asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm How do I know that of all the people on Earth, the Sun are direct descendants of our oldest ancestors? Alright, let me let me share my screen. This is very interesting. On, I hear their numbers dwindling fast. Soon they could be gone entirely. I'm arriving not a moment too soon. Is this journey of man? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Children, my wife. Do you want to see a picture of my daughter? Yeah. This is her, her school uniform. Her, what's her name? Margo. I have to explain to them why I'm here. But how do I begin? For a start, what's Bushman for geneticist anyway? I sense this is really going to be tough for a lab rat like me. I just want to tell you a little bit about why I've come here. Um, it's mostly to find out about your way of life. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I, it's it's such a dream for me to get to meet the San people, the Bushmen. In a way, you carry a secret in your blood, and you can think about it like a family tree. I explained the tree was just like the family that we all belong to. My family line is one of the small fractured branches at the very top, while theirs is the oldest on Earth, the biggest branch at the base of the trunk. I get the feeling I'm not explaining this at all well, but they're way too polite to say so. 
this is really quite embarrassing. So it's a great privilege for me to come and meet my distant relatives and the people who give us a glimpse of all of our ancestors. So in one sense, we're all Khoisan. We're all San people. It's just that my skin is slightly redder. <laughs> we would like to thank you for the information that you brought for us. This is like a dream for me. Everything predicted in their blood seems to be written in their faces. It's like looking at a composite model of every face from around the world. The eye shape of East Asians, the high cheekbones of Mongolians, the mid-brown skin that could turn darker or lighter. So how do I know that of all the people on Earth, the Sun are direct descendants of our oldest ancestors? I'll try to explain a little better this time. I work with DNA, our very own manual of life. It's in our blood, in every cell of our body, orchestrating our life processes. DNA is a ladder of just four linked molecules, A, C, G, and T, strung together in pairs in an incredibly long and complex sequence. If laid out, the DNA from one person would stretch to the moon and back 3,000 times. In our cells, this chain is broken into 46 bundles called chromosomes. Because of its sheer length, DNA is prone to develop small glitches in its sequence. They're called mutations. Everybody has them. When they occur, we pass them on to our children. We call these inherited mutations markers. As our chromosomes pass down through the generations, they carry these markers with them. They write our history. They're the source of our time machine, the way we can see back to our earliest ancestors. The markers I follow are found only in men on their Y chromosome, the chromosome that makes men men. But of course, men don't travel alone, and the journey of man is the journey of everyone. I was walking through the village and I saw that they had massive piles of bees sitting around everywhere, called the monkey oranges. They taste pretty good, they're a little bit like papayas. But I thought it would be a good idea to use them to explain exactly what we mean when we say we're following genetic markers. This is a man at some point in the past. The thing that makes him a man is his Y chromosome, a piece of DNA that's unique to men. When men have sons, they pass on their Y chromosome to those sons. Again, it's what makes them sons. So if we imagine that this man had two sons, they would have essentially identical DNA on the Y chromosome to their father. So they would get his Y chromosome in effect. And if we imagine that they also have sons, those sons, the grandsons of this very first man, would also have essentially the same DNA. But occasionally, we pass on these pieces of DNA, we get a change in a single letter in the sequence. We can call those mutations or markers, and that's what allows geneticists to trace descent. Now, I've represented this marker with a little strip of tape, a little black bar. And just like before, all of the sons of this particular man will have essentially the same Y chromosome, so they will inherit this marker. And in that way, the marker acts effectively as a badge of descent, a marker of descent from this particular man, and that's what we follow. Now, as we move further down the tree, most of the sons will inherit just that single bar, 
But occasionally, as we saw before, we will get a second change in the Y chromosome. A second marker appears showing descent from a particular man, in this case, this person, who has first that marker, which came from that person back there, but an additional unique change on his Y chromosome, which he then passes on to all of his descendants. So in the people that we're talking about living in the present day, in this part of the tree, they've got two markers. They clearly trace their descent from this man, but the first marker, remember, arose all the way back there, all those generations ago. The San Bushman markers are quite unlike any others found outside of Africa. In the world's family tree, their branch is the first to split from the rest. That's how I know they must be the oldest tribe on Earth. Okay. All right. So seeing that they have the, um, the oldest tribe, um, based off of DNA, would it mean that they would have the oldest language? Um, if that's correct? Not necessarily. Because, you know, it, it could be possible, for example, that let's just say, you know, they continued, of course, they're, they're living today from the, the oldest ancestral, you know, markers or whatnot. But languages, entire languages can be adopted. So the languages that the San people have, it's possible that, you know, uh, another group of humans, you know, actually produce that language. But the San spoke another type of languages that didn't have clicks and then came across these individuals and adopted their language. And then now the San have it, but the other people died out or blended in with some other groups. That's a possibility, which is why we can't, we can't equate language and genetics. Mm -hmm. you, can only, you can only equate genetics and language in a present synchronic state. So if you have a clear idea of a language family and what language groups exist, and then you take a sample of the DNA you know, of a, a representative population of that language speaker, of those language speakers, then and only then can you talk about, you know, how those language speakers currently, you know, correspond to uh, certain genetic markers and, and to what degree. But you cannot retro that back, you know, uh, without some, you know, super strong evidence you know, in terms of archaeology, in terms of history, in terms of, um, you know, things of that nature. So genetics and language do not equate because there's no there's no genetic marker for a type of language. Like there's no Bantu language gene. There's no Yoruba gene. There's no Igbo <laughs> gene. So you can't you, you can't. There's no there's no San language gene. There's a, there's genes that are predominant amongst the San but it has no indication on their language. Let me ask this, um, moving on. Um, with the whole Sumerian thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's obvious that the people who, the, the, the so-called Semitic folks that came in, they used the Sumerian language also mixed it in, I think, with their writings. I think that's mm -hmm. what I read before. Now, a lot of folks said that said the Sumerians came here between 32 to 2900 BC. And that's when they brought the language in and so forth. Um, 
Is it possible the people that were speaking the language or even writing about it were not the actual original Sumerians, but just people who developed or adapted the language later on? Uh, I mean, it's a possibility. And we, you know, this is the importance of the scientific method. So if that is a hypothesis, you, you do the experimentation and, you know, to try to eliminate that hypothesis. If the evidence supports it, then, of course, we retain it. Um, you know, from my hypothesis is that you had a group of Negro Egyptian speakers who left uh, Africa proper and went into the Middle East. A group of them settled amongst uh, those who lived in the Levant. And those who lived in the Levant, um, they produced a mixed language called Semitic. And whereas the Sumerians, although smaller in number, they had a prestige to them to where they uh, kept and retained their language. And uh, only after some time did the Semitic speakers, AKA the Akkadians, come and uh, invade. And the Sumerians were later, uh, you know, we can assume killed off and or absorbed into uh, the Semitic Akkadian culture. But right. it, it doesn't appear as if they was a super large group. They could have just been, you know, they could have been as large as a baby, you know, a thousand to five thousand people to maybe, you know, at most ten thousand folks, you right. know, over time. Um, but you know, that it, it's still it's still so much, you know, unknown that you can only hypothesize at this point. All right. But one thing, one thing is clear. When we systematically look at the language, we know that this language is is uh, there with Proto-Bantu. And so this tells us that these early Sumerian speakers came from Central Africa and moved out into the Middle East. All right. Um, I saw one you. more question on that before you go in. Oh, Garfield. So um, are you familiar with, the, with that Flynn-Hungarian hypothesis? Uh, um, there's several, uh, I, I may have come across it, but I, I, I must say that there are several hypotheses in terms of the origins of the Sumerians. But there's only one, to my knowledge, based off of all the evidence that I looked at, that can systematically, that can conclusively say that, you know, the Sumerian belongs to this language group. And, all right. and that is Sumerian with the the african language because all the other languages what they'll do is they'll pick words randomly and say that this word corresponds to this one but they'll never be able to do what we showed earlier in terms of a systematic you know a series of sound meeting correspondences and instead and setting up sound laws and so we can do that with sumerian and bantu but we can't do that with any of those so-called uh indo-european and uh asian languages Okay. Um, hold on a second. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know if you guys could see my screen, but 
but this is what they on the royal tomb of course they've been painted but if you look if you look at my screen um asar this is what these people are painting themselves to look like and and i have a problem i have a problem with this being us or being people from from um from africa because this don't this don't look nothing like our ancestors not saying our ancestors got to look a certain way but this mm -hmm. is how the people paint themselves and this is very i'm like why are they painting this is why i'm asking could the people who came along later on adopted the language and used it and then try to you know circumvent yeah. original that's, you know what i'm saying yeah that's that's what i said it's a possibility but you know it's, it's at this point it's a hypothesis you know uh because again there's no correspondence between genetics phenotype and language mm -hmm. you know it could have been a small group of individuals uh who came and um entered into a space who weren't that big but they had more prestige because of the level of their culture that they brought but then as as more and more people adopt over the years you know uh let's let's for example let's assume that you know uh dr ivan van sertema is correct that mansa musa and his group uh, of you know uh, a few boats came and um migrated over here to what is now mexico and became the omex and stuff like that right although you know it would have been a group of you know folks there maybe let's say a hundred when they got here to the united states you know after a generation or two you wouldn't be able to recognize them because they would have had to have been absorbed in the general population and so you would have had the mixed children and then the mixed children could only then procreate you know with the other children and so they look more and more like the the people who uh they they mixed with so it's the same like i could say that in my family uh line and so you know some european then had uh sex with you know a a, a black uh female slave who i don't know but produced a a son but because this son was mixed you know and, and still considered black he could only you know um have relations with other black people so the blackness gets darker and darker the features get richer and richer as the years go by because we're um that gen those generations are doing nothing but um uh, having relations and children with other african people now say it was in the opposite direction to where it was mixed but you know that son from the mixed uh relations was only having sex with white women Mm -hmm. The children after that will look more and more white, you know, after the second, third generation. And so this could be the same because Sumerian, you got to remember that Sumerian is an isolate language. Yeah. That all the other languages around it look nothing alike. So we know it's a group, a series of families who move amongst the people who outnumbered them. Hey, I'm sorry. You can you uh -huh. see the screen right now, this picture right here. Can you see this? Yeah. Picture? All right, you see this right here, this material. This you is um, okay. what they call it. I don't remember what they call it, but it's a certain material. Uh -huh. Now, this is what because you said something a while ago that's very interesting. 
I remember when Rawlinson, a lot of people who are not familiar, let me just say this for the people who don't know what Asar is mm -hmm. talking about. When Rawlinson came out and they had three other people that tried to transliterate the um the, the Sumerian language. Um all four people pretty much came up with the same understanding or transliteration when they were done. I don't know if you're familiar with that. All the four people that were assigned came up with the same thing. They didn't use the same methodology. The only person that came out and used um, uh, African language or said that the African language it's attached to it was Rawlinson. The other three didn't do that. Mm -hmm. They used whatever methodology they used, but everybody was just happy. Hey, you know what? Then Rawlinson came to the forefront and said, hey, it's based off of, um, an um, Afro-Asiatic or Egyptian or African language, whatever he said. But he was saying it basically came from Kush. That's what he was saying. Mm -hmm. that, so now the other three people, have we studied basically what they have said? Because when I look at this outfit right here, this doesn't look like an outfit somebody from from Kush would wear. It seemed like somebody would adapt it because this has a lot of cold weather. But let me, let me read something that was said. Um, Outside of it, I had to transfer it from one hangout to another. Um, the plate, the Sumerians lived in the south. Da, 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 da. I don't want to go into that. Let's go into this. The Sumerians wore thick and heavy clothes named kanaks, made from the wool. It is known that these types of clothes are not worn in hot places like Mesopotamia, but in the cold places. For that reason, these thick and heavy clothes must have been worn in cold places and plateaus that implicitly purport to homeland of the Sumerians. Um, let me see what else they said right here. Um, they talked about the language right here. The Sumerian language is a sentence, as a sentence structure, is a complex and confusing one, like you were just talking about. But it is close, according to these folks, of course, you know, these are white folks. The mm -hmm. Turkish language that has a logical order and sentence formation far away from the Semitic and Indo-European languages the word order is complex languages is in the form of subject, adverbs, indicating manner, time, place, object, subordinating, clause, verb. But in the Semitic and Indo-European languages, the word order is subject, verb, adverb, object, and subordinate clauses. I, I don't know. You would probably understand that. I don't understand one yeah. word. And, 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 and before you move forward, mm -hmm. uh, that's really kind of irrelevant mm -hmm. because languages can shift their word order over time. And so there's there's a, a phenomenon in historical comparative linguistics called typology. And typology looks at surface features and, and to compare these aspects of the language to see if they have the same feature like word order or if they have gender in the language. But you can never use these to establish a, a genetic link between languages mm -hmm. because those features can be borrowed from other languages. Okay. You know, and, and or they can they can innovate and shift over to they can appear, disappear, reappear over a long period of time. And so we have evidence of this happening in languages, you know, around the world. So that that typological comparison would be irrelevant in terms of establishing a genetic uh, a genetic relationship between the languages. All right, cool. And I wish I had, see, I wonder if, see, I know 
see, I don't know if they have, uh, what is it? What is that uh, program that Amazon has? Um, uh, Kindle for Ubuntu, because I'm on my Ubuntu machine right now. And if, if I could install Ubuntu, I'm um, excuse me, um, uh, I just said the dang uh, <laughs> software, uh, the, the Amazon um, Kindle on, on Ubuntu, I can, I can show some evidence from Hermel Hermstein's, uh, you know, book, because I have, I have the physical form, but I also have the Kindle version. Talking about the dude that said the Sumerians were black and all that stuff? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think I have his book, but he has some stuff in there that's kind of funny, man. That's that's kind of over the over the border from what I remember. But we could talk about which, it. We yeah. Which which book you have? Because I, I have the 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 physical evidence, and then there's the linguistic evidence. Oh, I can't. So I can't, again, I can't, I can't log out of um, Dynasty Squad Junior. But if I could, I would have showed you. Um, I think we have it in a bunch of books that we have. Okay. But um, he has a, um, actually bought his book for to research um, the Nubia and the Sumer connection. He has another book. I have that one also. Sumer and the Nubia connection. But I mean, everybody's saying that um, um, like the word Kish is there, so that's related to Kush. And I, I'm not. I don't know about. Yeah, everybody yeah. throws Kush around. Yeah, that's that's you my know, that's my problem. You see, my problem is this, um, Asar. Uh huh. I, I come out of everybody want to be black. Everybody wants <laughs> So I don't want to be in that mindset. I mean, the DNA, they're trying to say they are Marsh Arabs. And um, the, um, I don't know, because Kush, if you look at the time period of who, which empires were ruling and people who were building, and you look at what Egypt brought to the table. And you look at what um, the people in northern Mesopotamia and Syria brought to the table in Anatolia. These people were, were building. If you look at the um, the Gobel Tepe, those people are builders. They did it between 7,000 and, and, and um, 10,000 years ago or whatever. But my, my, my point is, I don't see people from Kush migrating in a large period at that point, maybe way before. But not at that point and that time period because of the dominance that Egypt had over that era. Yeah, but then it gets See? to the fact of uh, what country are you talking about? Having in India, you know, having a part covering at, according to the classical writers. So it's like, what are you talking about when you say Kush? But you you have to I be think. careful. You have to be careful even with that because. Uh, Again, it's what it's, it's like saying the word Nubian. The word Nubian is not attested in in historical Egypt or anything. There's no group calling themselves Nubian historically. That was something that was projected onto the past by more modern writers. Mm -hmm. And so, like the when you say Kush in ancient Egyptian, it's really not Kush. It's K R, then the S H sound. There's only one group of people that I found with that same consonant cluster that lives in the Sudan, and that's the Kresh people. They're Nilo-Saharan speaking people. Now, whether they were the heads of an old empire, you know, who knows? Um, but they're not that large of a group of a people. 
and you know people throwing around Kushites because they may have a word that looks or sounds similar in the language. That's not how you do linguistics. That's bad linguistics. You know, and uh, you know, and, and for instance, like if we take Hermstein's um, analysis, it is more so he doesn't argue for Kushites. He argues that a group of people coming from the Chadic, Lake Chadic region migrated eastward, you know, um, not going through Egypt, but, you know, crossing over, you know, saying with boats into the area and then migrating over time. So this is a long period of time, mm. you know, and so uh, that's why we got to look at all of these analysis and which is more plausible, yeah. you know. And so um, I, I, I found, you know, I don't, I don't think I have to use the software, but I have my Kindle account open. And I guess I first got to find it in my physical book. Yeah, we got, you know, we got two questions. We got a couple of questions that I skipped over. Go ahead. Um, brother asks, he asks, could the dropping of the vowels be to accommodate different dialects, allowing for more fluidity while retaining understanding, etc.? Um, that's a hypothesis. And, you know, I think it will remain a hypothesis. I'm not sure because outside of actually speaking to the person who invented the script, all we can do is guess. Mm -hmm. You know. And so we don't know why it could see, but here's the thing: the script possibly could indicate vowels. We just haven't cracked that code. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a possibility. You know, um, hold on one sec. Let me. Alan, Alan, do you still want to ask that question, or you want to wait until after the debate? Oh, what question was that? The, um, the history of um, UNESCO stuff. You want to wait till after the debate? Uh, you can wait. Yeah, they probably you know they ain't watching this. <laughs> watching Don't sleep. They ain't watching. They, I mean, they like, ain't got, like, they ain't got no jobs. So they got all the time in the world to watch all these videotapes. I just say that it is it, it's, it's a phenomenal history on that is well documented that I don't I don't understand it. I don't get it. You can just you can look at Krishna. You can look at Ivan um, Washa. You can look at D. Stacy. They show you exactly what they did, how they did it, how they looked at these cartouches. They show you how they did the stone. They told they show you every step they made. They show you where they presented it at. They show you Krishna being pseudo as hell, and then they and they keep going and it, like some. But I don't. I have yet to see one person who says this to show me that the method that they used is wrong. Uh -huh. I have never seen that yet. Yeah, I've never seen you're that. You're not. And, um, I'm like, okay, I, I, I can respect you saying that. I can respect your points. I can respect you saying, oh, the heretic 40% of it is wrong. Okay, show me that the, the method that they used is wrong and show me why and explain it to us. You know, yeah. You know what's wrong with this whole thing, man? The dudes who are staying are not That's yeah. wrong. They're really cheating the community right now by trying to be linguist. Stay in the history lane, stay in the pseudo lane, 
and just do what you do. Don't step in a lane that you don't. That's like me saying, hey, I'm going to debate Asari Motepa Mujao on a word in Medjanetta. I can't even read. I don't even know in Medjanetta. What the hell? <laughs> That's terrible. Listen, man, I ain't never been deciphered. Tuna form ain't never been deciphered. That's it. <laughs> Basically. I'm going to say English ain't been deciphered. <laughs> English hasn't been deciphered. <laughs> how you get the how you get the sound ah uh, from the letter A? Yeah. Oh, 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 I, I just made an error. I said English hasn't been deciphered. I mean, hasn't been translated all properly. Let me just put it out. Exactly. <laughs> you don't know you don't know the esoteric and exoteric, you know, aspects to the language. Yep. You know. But um yeah, as far as the Sumerian thing, I just wanted to present and read uh, something, you know, from uh, Hermstein's text. Okay. You know, from the from the chapter, and 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 to show the reasoning, you know, uh, you know, based on some of the evidence that he provided. So this isn't dealing with. This is just strictly on the language. We can tell from the languages, and so then after we've established the language issues. Then we can look into archaeological and, and genetic and all that other kind of stuff. But in this on the Kindle edition, uh, this is page 2328 of 5,349. Let me show you a screen. Hold on. All right, go ahead, bro. You go ahead. But uh, in the physical book, this starts on page 80. But, you know, he's he's showing here, he says, from Africa to Mesopotamia, not vice versa, mm. you know, based on the on the language. So he says most proto uh, Bantu Sumerian potential cognates occur in other branches in Niger Congo. It is therefore natural to consider them Niger Congo potential cognates and not Sumerian loanwords into proto Bantu. So when we're comparing Sumerian and proto Bantu, we notice that these other words also exist in Niger Congo languages. So it can't be a, 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 an issue of the Sumerians coming into Africa and loaning all these words into this large language family, you know, versus the other. So that's what he's saying right here. So he says, proto Niger Congo is estimated to date back to at least 8,500 BCE. This predates the oldest written Sumerian by at least 5,000 years. The most parsimonious interpretation of the evidence is that Proto-Niger Congo is the source of the potential cognates in both Proto-Bantu and Sumerian. This will require a flow of people from West Africa to Mesopotamia. The highest region of diversity in Bantu-speaking Africa is the Cameroon-Nigerian border. This observation led the linguist Greenberg to conclude that this high diversity region as the cradle of the Bantu languages. Modern Bantuists agree with this position. West Africa has the highest diversity of Niger Congo languages. Niger Congo is the largest language phylum or superfamily in the world with about with around 1500 languages. It is around 20% of the world's languages. One language with Niger Congo cognates occurred in southern Mesopotamia in the early ancient period. The most parsonymous interpretation of this evidence is that there was a migration of speakers of a Niger Congo language from Africa to Mesopotamia in historic times. We should also consider the nature of some of the potential cognate pairs. Compare um, uh, cognate pair number 14 involves uh, the reconstructed. And so when we have a reconstruction, Brother um, Allen, we put a star in front of it, in front of the word. So this is how we know that this is a reconstruction 
based on the comparative method that I showed you earlier. So that this word cod reconstructed for incise cut tattoo with Sumerian sar right suggests an etymology for the Sumerian right comparable to that of the English right, which descends from Proto-Germanic written cut score tear rent. If anything, the Proto-Bantu etymology for Sumerian term is semantically clearer. It is also clear that Proto-Bantu meaning came first because the writing is developed out of the practice of incising and tattooing. The most parsimonious interpretation of the evidence is that the word originated amongst uh, West African uh, ancestors of the Proto-Bantu speakers, some of whom migrated to Southern Mesopotamia to become the ancestors of the Sumerian speakers. The Proto-Bantu evidence offers an explanatory achievement in relation to the Sumerian evidence. The Proto-Bantu Sumerian data offers confirmatory achievement uh, in relation to what is known for uh, etymologies of languages in general. So basically what we just read is that this word for writing in Sumerian comes from an etymology that means to cut and slice, right? But in Proto-Bantu, because they don't have writing, they don't use that word for writing and, and um, uh, or whatnot. They still have the archaic word simply for to cut and to incise. So if the Proto-Bantu speakers, or if the Bantu speakers borrowed this from the Sumerians, it would be the word for right, not the word for cut. So since the Bantu has the older form and older usage, and that the Sumerian is an innovation, a semantic shift in the word, we know that it's from Africa to Mesopotamia that this word came. And so it's the same, you know, argument for um, a, a lot of the other words. And so, you know, we could actually do a, you know, a full presentation on this. And there's just one and more thing. Hold on, so, hold on a second. Um, what, what's interesting here is um, because I had to go get my book, seeing that you brought out your book, I had to bring out uh -huh. um, When We Ruled by Robin um, Walker. And, and, uh -huh. and the guy that promotes this book a lot, what's his mm -hmm. name? Farajai Sophia. Are you familiar yeah. with him? Yeah, Faris Sophia. All right. Because he, they, you see, I don't mind because because of um, the whole thing with Zion and he came out with that thing and, you know, me and the Dagger Squad, we did like a whole two months. We bought like about, about like 40 books studying. Uh -huh. And majority of the books is saying pretty much what the whole Kush thing. And that's what my problem is. Mm -hmm. you, say that they, that you know directly they came from Kush. But if it's a Niger-Congo, that's another thing. Are they a part of that family? That's what he's arguing. So he's not going by the uh, Obinga Mboli uh, model. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's not talking about Negro-Egyptian as a family. He's going by the traditional Greenberg model. And so uh, with the Greenberg model, you have a super family called Niger-Congo. And so what they're arguing is that Sumerian comes out of Niger-Congo. So we, we got to understand that they, he's not the only person who's made this argument. There's another author that uh, Dr. Wayne, who uh, uh, was also a linguist, who compares Sumerian to uh, the Zulu language. He was an expert in Zulu and Bantu languages and argued that Sumerian and uh, Bantu are related. Then you have 
what's his name? Um, Dr. Uh, G.J. Campbell Dunn, another linguist out of New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And he, when he examines Sumerian, he's like, Sumerian is a Niger-Congo language. These are separate texts who, when they did the systematic study of Sumerian and the uh, African languages, came to the conclusion that all of them are Niger-Congo. Mm. Excuse me, that Sumerian is Niger-Congo, every last one of them. Mm. And so Supia, see, I have a little history with, and, and don't be confused, the word Hermel Hermstein, even though it's white, it's a, it's a brother who, who wrote this book. And, oh, okay. I didn't know that. And, yeah. So some years ago, mad years ago, like 2005, 2004 or so, before there was a Facebook, before there was MySpace and all of that, you know, people just really used to hang out on message board forums and on like Yahoo list mm-hmm. or some kind of listserv. And so there was this linguistic listserv that existed, probably still exists to this day, where Hermel Hermstein first, you know, proposed a relationship between Sumerian and Proto-Bantu. And so he presented his information to the linguists who were on the forum. And they just, you know, summarily just dismissed him. Mm. Except Brother Fari Sapaya. So me and me and Fari Sapaya have gotten into a lot of debates right. based on the relationship between Egyptian and Bantu. But that's neither here nor there. So Fari Sapaya is there. And he's in Fari Sapaya, to his credit, he's like, let's look at the evidence. When we looked at his evidence, it could not be explained by chance coincidence. And so there was still some work that he needed to do, but Faris Sapir was like, he has enough that he could continue on, you know, with his studies. And so Hermel Hernstein wasn't that gifted yet in linguistics to, to make a full argument. So it's not until, you know, we have this book here. And remember, Faris Sapira did that last chapter in When We Ruled, you yeah. know, that supported, right. you know, initially um, what Hermel Hermstein, Hermel Hermstein is the one, you know, in more recent times that made that claim. And so Faris Sapaya is the one who showed him what he needs to learn and where he needs to go and how to make a linguistic argument. So that's what you see here. So that's why, like, even when you read the text, um, in the I, I think in the acknowledgments, he he gives a a shout out to uh, Brother Safari Sapaya. He said, "Without you, I am nothing." Mm-hmm. You know, because it's, it's Brother Safari that that showed him where to uh, how to make this linguistic argument. And so, um, again, that work that you see in the book for those who have the book when we ruled, you go to um, page six forty five. That's where. Um, he did an afterward for um, when we ruled, and you know it's pretty pretty interesting. Yeah. So once you see, like when you, when you look at, say, I don't have a Kindle version of that, so I just got to go to the actual page. But when you see that uh, those comparisons, it's not by chance. We can establish sound laws, like I showed, you know, um, previously in this uh, discussion. And, and you see it, you know, uh, here. Now, I, I have a fundamental, you know, uh, issue with the method, you know, uh, because if you really want to establish the everything, 
you just you just go strictly on comparing like Sumerian to a living language, like with uh, Doctor what's his name did. So that's what he did with Sumerian, and so you know a a a a, a pure linguist would say, well, you know the reconstructions are hypothetical languages, right? You know, and so you're comparing a living language to a hypothetical. What you do is you compare it to a living, and then you compare the reconstructions to see, you know, uh, if that adequately explains the relationship that you detected, if you detected a relationship between, you know, saying those languages. Uh, the book that I was uh, trying to allude to was uh, Reverend W. Wanger and his Comparative Lexical Study of Sumerian and Intu, Bantu. Mm -hmm. uh, 1935. And so, matter of fact, it's subtitled. Uh, hold on. Uh, Sumerian, the Sanskrit of the African into languages. And so, you know, I have that book in my possession. It's a rare book, and it looks old too. <laughs> you know, you tell us that old paper. Well, let, let let let's let's say this though. But if if so have you have we found words just like how you you showed um to, to write and they said to cut or something to that effect you said about um bantu languages and and sumerian mm -hmm. so how far do you think that the people migrated the thousands of years before we think though it could have see man, that's what i was getting to so let me go back because, to because sumer right it's where sumer is mm -hmm. sumer was a swamp 6,000 BC. So, so whoever, whoever whoever came, because Southern Mesopotamia was a swamp. So what they had to do is they had to get all their raw materials and all different cultures came in from different directions. Because I don't know if you're aware of this, but the cylinder seals that Mesopotamia make, the, the material actually comes from Kemet, from Egypt. And I could prove it. So that's telling me that people traded, but they, different cultures from Anatolia, Northern Syria, they all brought raw materials to Sumer, Southern Mesopotamia, because it was just a big swamp that needed to be built up. So if you look at the Metropolitan Museum map, you'll see they show all the Northern areas up until the Ubaid period starting around 6,000 BC. They didn't have anything there. So that's another thing to consider when we're talking about coming into the country. So I'm trying to find the uh, the page where he proposes his hypothesis that they came from, you know, like Central Africa going through Lake Chad. And well, see, so he has a I like that theory. I like, huh? that. I like that theory. Yeah. Um, and and he's given a time. The reason why, because he gives a timeline, and I I just wanted to sh share his timeline. Um, but I can't uh find it off the bat. Let's see. Did I mark it? Because ironically, I didn't mark this book up too well, which is which is yeah, you know, I, crazy for me. I don't know, man. I think it's weird. Like the linguistics say one thing. Uh, the DNA says one thing, and the actual artwork of the Sumerians say one thing. They all say three different things. Because there's no correlation. I, I keep trying to tell folks there's no correlation yeah. between language and genetics. Again, this, right, you know, right, right. If, if it was, a, you know, in order for them, like, let's say that the Sumerian folks were indigenous folks there who adopted 
uh, a language from a minority group, right? Um, they, you would still have to argue if all of the linguistic evidence is supporting that it comes from uh, Central Africa, you would still have to argue that those folks migrated to that area. Otherwise, how else could they have adopted the, the African language? Yeah, that's the point. So like when yeah. people use the linguistics to show that it's an African language, that means that it's an African civilization or African exactly. added civilization. But when we look at- hey, But you know what you're I'm, probably forgetting though, bro? You're probably forgetting that? They traded in that book, Samuel Mark's book, he did talk about that and and, and, and um, Alisa Meza's book. It talks about how mm -hmm. they used to trade, North Syria used to trade with Africa. So yeah, that right that could be another way too to carry the language you know you're carrying people back and forth it could i mean i don't know in that same time but, but you got to understand that it's different when you're doing trade because you might exchange vocabulary you may even to the point share a grammatical feature but an entire language is something totally different right and so right. this is why when we compare we're not comparing languages of culture and trade. We're looking at so-called basic vocabulary, words for mother, father, son, water, um, the sun itself, stars, sky, food, um, up, down, left, right, numbers, stuff that you know is not going to be easily borrowed. You know, we'll borrow Mitsubishi because that's the name of the, the company. Of uh, the the car manufacturer, right, right, right. But just because I borrow some words for Japanese goods doesn't mean we adopt Japanese mm -hmm. as our entire language and we write, you know, uh, Japanese language. Hey, I saw. Look at my screen, right? Can you guys see my screen? Um, go ahead. All right. This is the timeline from Metro Metropolitan Museum, right? So they're showing. This is um blow it up, Garfield. Blow it up. Blow it up. I'm doing something wrong then. I'm doing something wrong. What am I doing wrong? Where's my Can you guys see that? Yeah, I can at least. All right. So you look you look at the Hasuna period, right? And the Samara period. These people are in the north. This is in northern Mesopotamia. If you look at the south, there's nobody there. There's nobody there. There's nothing there. It's a swamp. So when when so now when you move to the next time period, you see the Ubaid period comes in. This is when the people start entering into that region. The 6200 to 44,000 BC, while the other cultures are influencing this area. But there was no such thing as Sumeria. It never existed before this time period because it was a big swamp. So no, so so when folks say what developed when, you got to take this into consideration that people from all different cultures, which is good, because now we know that people from everywhere came into that region to bring raw materials, bring information through trade and so forth. You know, lapis lazuli was a big thing that was in the Hindu Hindu Kush region. They came from that area. You know what I'm saying? They came into Sumer. They came into Egypt with that lapis lazuli bluestone. So we know that people traded and came into this region. Now, the issue is, are the people who we would consider Sumerians originally here then, from then, 6200, 
or did they just come in from like around 4,000 BC? So then you look at the next chart, it tells you like different people. You have now the Europe period. And the Europe period, you have a lot of building in that period. It's a lot of people building up stuff in this region and in Iran and so forth. And then when you move on further down, now you have the Jemdet Nazar period and then the Akkadian period. So that's when you have different people, um, the so-called Semitic people coming in and then they bring in the language. So when we're looking at it, we got to look at it from a um, from three different perspectives, maybe. Maybe that's how we got to look at it. But you would still have to detect in the actual Sumerian script mm -hmm. these borrowed words mm -hmm. that are so-called present mm -hmm. uh, in, in these languages. And so, again, we don't know the nature of the rulership. Like, for instance, um, we know that the Africans who came and created, who helped develop the Sumerian language had the most prestige and dominance in that region because of the, oh, the culture oh, 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 oh. that was adopted. Repeat that, brother. Repeat that. Say that again. Okay. Remember what I said earlier, that Semitic is the result of Negro Egyptian speakers moving into the Levant and finding indigenous folks there and their conversion is what gives birth to proto-Semitic, which gives birth to these other Semitic languages. Okay. But we can tell that it is the Africans who had the prestige at the time because of what words are retained from the Negro Egyptian culture. And these are the words in terms of like ideas for kingship, leadership, you know, in terms of trade, weapons, things of this nature. Mm. Whereas these these native folks didn't adopt. So this is why linguistics is like it's 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 a lot of work and there's a lot of stuff that you have to know and to be looking for when answering certain questions. Right, right, right. Hey, you let know. me ask you this on the top of my head, man. Let me see if there's any questions in the chat. I see Sean and, and are you correct? And um Dasequa is um talking about some different stuff that I don't understand. But um let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. In my presentation on Sonetta, I, I broke down how the, the 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 script originated in Kemet, the script for the um the Phoenician script. Mm -hmm. Am I correct by saying the script originated in Egypt, but the language did not originate in Egypt? Exactly. Woo! Garfield getting it. Yeah, I'll be an A student, Monica. Tell y'all sign me up. Tell him sign me up. Yeah. But um, I think a lot of people mistake that though. They they take the the um. This is why I think many people take offense to when we say the script come out of Egypt. But the, the truth of the matter is, we're not talking about language. We're just talking about a script. Exactly. And so some some, uh, matter of fact, you know, see what they don't understand is that the 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 Phoenicians, the Semitics, you know, used to read Meta Nature. And you know, there's a uh, there's a author by the name of Satzinger. There's a whole article on that, mm -hmm. on, on these folks reading Metanetcher. And so they just finally adopted parts of the script and created at different aspects of their own. Um, and it doesn't even have to be a day; it could be one person. One person created the script, and you know now it becomes a script for the language of the uh, the Phoenicians. Which then becomes Hebrew, which then becomes Greek, which becomes our Latin. So our Latin, the words that we write with, is metanature. 
Mm. I think it's just a supervised version. And actually broke that down too. Mm -hmm. I have a question um, before you go any further. Um, this is from the brother um, Six Dynastic Mighty Wisdom. Can you ask Asar if Seti and Pharaoh aren't educated in, in this area of study, which I believe is a true statement, and as you said, they're doing a disservice to the community by debating it. Why wouldn't the Amira squad decline the debate and conduct a lecture or workshop on the deciphering of the Medianetta? I don't understand them accepting the challenge. Okay, well, there's several reasons. Um, one, we do we do deal with this every day. And so we have plenty of, uh, uh, of videos and, and texts which deal with this question. And um, the problem is, is that a SETI and a pharaoh, because of the technology of YouTube and Instagram and blog talk radio, have projected this idea to a lot of people who are believing them wholesale without having the necessary intellectual tools to assess what they're saying. And sometimes the only way that you can kill an argument is to confront it head on. Now, you know, this isn't a debate for anyone serious on, uh, on, on this question. Nowhere, is, nowhere in academia are they debating this question. This, this was solved in 1822. <laughs> you know, but every now and then you just get these quacks who who present information that are influencing a lot of young people and then some people have to come and step in and and lower themselves to engage in the conversation mm -hmm. but do it necessarily because the uh, the fate of the the future the fate of our future is in the hands of those who are believing such nonsense for example when it comes to evolution the concept of evolution has already been solved for 150 years. It's, it's nothing but evidence upon evidence upon evidence that secures the uh, evolution as a scientific theory. However, you continue to get these creative creationists who keep trying to find ways to teach creationism in science classes and are moving to you know, push legislation to make that happen. So now the scientists have to take away their time to re-engage the community because the, the vast majority of the community isn't in scientific classes. They're not taking these genetic courses. They're not taking physical anthropology, bi biology and stuff to this nature. And even if they are, you know, there uh, is very few of us in, in terms of the compared, in terms of the larger population like 300 million who actually make it to college or and who, who study this stuff on their own so you know they they understand this from a nation building standpoint and that's the point that i'm bringing on december 18th the nation building standpoint they understand that they cannot maintain their position in the world um if they lose their scientists wow in the future generation Wow. Hey, what what you gotta say about um Walter Williams? Somebody said um <laughs> what you gotta say about Walter Williams? You know what? Nah, nah. I'm not even gonna ask you that, bro. 
I'm not even going to yeah. ask. Yeah. I got a, um, I got another question for us. Before, hold on a second. The, the, the whole thing about, um, I want, I want you to be clear on the oldest attestation we have for, um, for a Semitic language is Akkadian. Um, I noticed in the Nuzi tablets and in the, um, the Ebla tablets. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. You cannot say, you have to be careful how you word that. Right. Because Akkadian and Sumerian are two totally unrelated languages. Mm -hmm. Akkadian uses Sumerian script. It mm. does not adopt Akkadian language. Mm. That's why I can appreciate Hermel Hermstein's work. Mm. Because when he's preparing, when he's doing his citations and the comparisons, like, let me find an example for you so you can see. Um, let's just go on page 49 when he starts. You see on one end the reconstructed Bantu then on the other end, you see the uh, Sumerian word, and then the same word in Akkadian, which is right below it. Mm -hmm. So you can show that this is not Akkadian. Every single variation, for all these matches that we find between Proto-Bantu and Sumerian, when we go to Akkadian, it's totally different than the words that we're comparing. So these are totally different languages. So you cannot say that Sumerian and Akkadian, you know, that Akkadian, that the earliest attestation of Akkadian or Sumerian is with Akkadian. They're totally different languages. Akkadians no, 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 adopt no, no. Sumerian script. I, I made a mistake. I meant, are oh, you beating me up? I'm sorry. I meant Semitic. Semitic. I'm sorry. I meant to say yes. Semitic language. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, the oldest attested Semitic language is that Akkadian. Akkadian, right. I was trying to say that um, if Akkadian is the oldest attestation, and we know that um, the Nuzi tablets, they also write in a Semitic language. Um, is it fair to say that the language can be shown? Because a lot of the Amorite um, um, folks seem to be very familiar with the Semitic, Semitic language also. Is it fair to say that the Hebrew language grew out of that? I mean, the Hebrew language is simply a dialect of Phoenician. Mm -hmm. That's it. Okay. It, it, it has nothing to do with Akkadian. Akkadian, see, that's why I prefaced at the beginning based on, I forgot who asked the question, but that because Akkadian is the oldest attested language doesn't mean it is the oldest language. Right. It's just the, it's just the oldest Semitic language that we have on record. Doesn't mean it's the oldest. So that's why I said Akkadian has, you know, some new features that when we reconstruct Proto-Semitic, we notice that Arabic has retains the older features that Akkadian doesn't have. Mm, that's deep, right? You know, Repeat that, brother. That's deep. Yeah. So uh, basically what I said is that in the context that just because a language is attested earlier doesn't mean that it is the oldest. So an attestation and being the oldest are two separate things. And so while Akkadian is attested, the oldest attested Semitic language, it is Arabic that retains the older features of Proto-Semitic, that uh, certain features that Akkadian has lost. Mm. So if we want to get a, a, a better sense of what uh, Proto-Semitic was probably like, you would study Arabic. Just like when you want to understand what 
a proto Negro Egyptian was like. You study Bantu. Mm. Because although uh, Egyptian is the oldest attested Negro Egyptian language, it is not the oldest. And, and, and it is, uh, uh, we can tell that uh, Egyptian has a lot of modifications and changes in the language that has happened uniquely to it. But Bantu retains the older archaic features of Negro Egyptian. So you wouldn't use ancient Egyptian solely to try to really understand uh, the Negro Egyptian language family. You know, uh, for that, you really have to study Bantu. But, you know, but again, Egyptian, as attested in the Metanetra script, reinforces the antiquity of certain features of Negro Egyptian and in Bantu. Because those fossilized ideas are present in the writing script itself. So I hope that answers. All right, Alan, go ahead. You wanted you wanted to um, ask some Alan. I know. I think you're going into the ancient, um, the Sanskrit stuff. I think that's what you wanted to go into. You want to yeah. Put, so um, yeah, you can put the um the Mohajavo site up first. The Mohajavo um the Harbo site. I got, so, I got the nature website. Is that the yeah, one? Hold on. Yeah, the nature, the nature joint. So, like, when when people are saying stuff is not deciphered and stuff like that, we have scripts that are not deciphered. You know I'm saying, mm -hmm. so when you're saying this, we got to look at that, and then then you can say this is a definition of what a script that has not been deciphered and it's not mm -hmm. agreed upon. No one knows what it is. So, if Garfield showed that site there, you have all these different people trying to figure out what is these signs. Some people say, oh, there's some in Assyria, um, or we can relate it to some Egyptian glyphs. Peachy tried to relate it to glyphs, but it ain't deciphered. Yeah. And um, you, the same you, you, thing. I'm sorry to interrupt, but before you continue, because I think it goes well at, at this point of your conversation, is that there's different levels of decipherment. And so, for example, the Mariotic script in, uh, in the Sudan has not been deciphered. However, the phonetics have been deciphered. We know the right. sounds, but we just don't know what the words mean. And so, uh, by and large, we consider the language, even though we understand the phonetics, we, we don't understand the meanings of the words. So we, we can't we, we can't say that the language has been deciphered. Right, right. And another one that I find interesting is what they call um, Linear A, which is uh, in a, mm -hmm. in a Mycenaean period, where they have Cretan hieroglyphs. Put that up, Garfield. I got Again, you. that's another, you know what I'm saying, if you blow that Jasper stone that they got right there from 1800 BC, that's mm -hmm. another thing that has it. So when you're saying, when these brothers are saying this, like you just showed how you can have a language without a script, what is the process, the methodology of doing this and finding this. And then we have mm -hmm. these scripts or these specific things that's there. They're like, yo, we don't know what this is. Versus us looking at the glyphs in um, Egypt, we know what they are, and it's attested mm -hmm. to and shown. So this is what you call not disciple. I don't understand, man. Yeah, I'm there's uh, speaking of linear A. Dang, I can't, I can't find my other book. Um, but it's by the same author, Doctor G.J.K. Campbell Dunn, who I mentioned before, who did the. He also did a work on Sumerian and Niger Congo, um, but he also did a work on. Going to be promoting all his books today. 
Uh, I'm trying to find it so y'all can see what it looks like to cover. I'm hoping that it's not in some other bookcase. You know, I got books everywhere, so um, anyway, I can't find it. But it, the book is called uh, Who Were the My Knowings? An African Answer. And um, but he also has this text here, the, the African Origins of Civilization. This is a white man, uh, G.J.K. Camelodon, who's a linguist. And he also has this text here, Comparative Linguistics, Indo-European and Niger-Congo. <laughs> and he's showing how, you know, the what he argues is that Indo-European comes out of Niger-Congo languages. And that uh, even the linear A more than likely is Niger-Congo. Um, and it's interesting because Jean-Claude and Boley, without even reading this work in his, that his African origins of, of African languages book, you know, also argues that, uh, excuse me, what he argues that, what he differs in this, and, and I, in terms of Sumerian, so I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but that Indo-European comes out of Negro-Egyptian languages. So they're using two different models but ultimately saying the same thing that Indo-European languages come out of African languages and um, and when it comes to Sumerian while Wagner and GJK Campbell Dunn and Fari Sapaya and Hermel Hermstein argues that they come out of Niger-Congo languages Mboli argues that it's not a Niger, it's not a Negro Egyptian language, but it was influenced heavily by Negro Egyptian. So that's his argument in this text. So it differs from everyone else. But to to his to everyone else's credit, he doesn't do a full analysis. He just deals with certain features and of the language in terms of grammar and stuff. And he knows Negro Egyptian has something to do with it. But he doesn't do an in-depth analysis like Hermel Hermstein does, or or Wagner or Campbell Dunn uh, on Sumerian and um, Niger Congo. What was that book you said on linear A again? See, he has he has a he he has a small little book on linear A and and African languages. So he's he's saying that the people from like Mali are are the origins like the same proto folks that give birth to like the Dogon, the, the Dagara, the Bambara, you know, those places are the ones who uh, gave birth to those uh, cultures and, and writing scripts in, um, uh, in the Agaean in terms of linear A. So linear B, however, is a raw Indo-European language. And so linear A, is is one of those undeciphered uh but he's saying based on you know the evidence that he looked at you need to look into mali in niger congo languages and so what people got to understand is that africans have spread as a result of the drying of the sahara and the drying of you know what we now call arabia and things and this forces people to to scatter in these different areas so you have people in north africa who all used to be in the Sahara, excuse me, who spread out into the Aegean in the Southern Europe. And this is where you get your Pelasgians from. And, you know, he also argues 
that uh, what is that language? Um, the Basque language has affinities with Niger Congo. And so we're showing that what all these different authors who are looking at these questions are, are, are verifying is that outside of the initial out of Africa movement of Africans, you know, to populate the rest of the world, there was other movements more recently in history, anywhere from 8,000 to 5,000 BCE into these areas which helped to shape the culture and languages of those groups. All right, all right. All right, no, I just snatched that one. So, but I, I was trying to show the author because I couldn't find my other book. And yeah. so, but the author is G.J.K. Campbell Dunn. And so watch when I hang up, I actually find that uh, text. But in, in terms of like, who are the Mayoans? You know, it's, it's uh, that's, that's Campbell Dunn. Where the hell is my book? Danny put a question in the back chat. Go ahead. Question asks, how do how how did Matthew DeCosta know the language of the Native Americans in Canada? I have no idea. That's that's not my area of expertise. Any other questions? I'm sorry, I couldn't answer that question. Um, let me see what else. So my book is probably in the living room with those books. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Mm, hold on, let me share something real quick here with the panel. Present something real quick here. Let me just show you guys a quick flyer that's um going on with um. Martin, Sister Monica gonna be there. It's DJ Spin for Change presented by Our Heart Media, and I'm gonna be a panelist speaking about economics. Um, it's gonna be at Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky, December the third, which is next weekend, and it's gonna be a beautiful event, man. I just hope um, we get the support. It's been getting a lot of traction down there, so a lot of people been telling me about it. So hey, I'll be down there on the third. Go check it out. So, y'all could check. You it only, out. only going because Monica's going. There you go. Starting, starting stuff, man. Sister Monica is gonna be there. I was about to mention that, and she's gonna be talking about student loans, student loan crisis. So she's on that panel. All right. All right, Sister. I got my own flyer, Alan. Ah. <laughs> like I'll associate myself with that dude. <laughs> fire. <laughs> I am so fire. Monica, right, Lisa. Right, she's Monica, right. Oh man, dagger. Okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Hey, hey, um, Asar dropped a lot of stuff today, man. I wanted to get into the um I wanna get more into the whole Hebrew thing though. Because, yeah. because um, as a spoken language, I know it's a dial, simply a dialect of um, Tunisian. And yeah. you know, one of the things a lot of people don't realize, a lot of the artifacts that they have found when they said it's, it's in Hebrew, it's actually in Tunisian, but they say it's in Hebrew. Yeah. 
a lot of a lot of the artifacts. And Aramaic, Aramaic is another dialect too. You know, so is Louisiana and other different dialects. But anyway, any more questions in the audience, man? I'm about to shut it down now. Alan, any more questions, bro? No, I'm good. True story, any more questions? True story, you're going to ask the impossible. <laughs> hey, let me ask you this, man. Honestly speaking, Asar, the uh -huh. whole book about the whole Amen thing. I know you, you associated with them. I don't want to really put you on the spot. But I'm gonna ask with who? With, with who? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last part. Dr. Ethan Faraji, the whole thing about the I mean, okay. Afu Ra, Afu Ka. <laughs> no, I don't think they have that in there. Um, that's that, that's a that's a totally different dude. That's Quincy Akar. We know that yeah. dude is scared, man. That dude is just the worst. But they're using him though. He's been used with this book though, the new edition that's coming out. They he told me he using you and Son Jetty and and him. See, I hope he doesn't use him, but uh, <laughs> and and it's nothing to be. I know, uh, I know. To 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 you know, but yeah, no. Um, but uh, I'm sorry. Answer your ask your question. Yeah. Um, what that book though? I mean, what purpose is that book though? Does what purpose is going to serve? I know they said it made it for the church, but yeah. why? I mean, let it be. I would leave it as it is, man. I would leave it as it is. I wouldn't even well, make it. I would leave it as it is. Let it be. Well, well, there's several issues why a second edition is needed. Because, you know, it's, it's just a preliminary work. And uh, this was one of my critiques. This is how I met them. Mm -hmm. So when, when they published the book, I, I, I came across the book and I looked at it. And I was like, well, he he presents a good hypothesis, but they don't go through the steps to prove their point. And there are certain theoretical assumptions that need to be uh, discussed. And there's certain things that you need to be uh, privy of. And so, um, so that's that. And again, it was just to show because, you know, Dr. Faraji is still in the church, but he's not in the church in the same way that, you know, a T.D. Jakes is in a church, you know, because he's teaching Egyptian, you know, uh, origins of a lot of the biblical claims. So you have to have those individuals who, you know, who go into the belly of the beast trying to get some of the people out. And so he's taking it upon himself to do that. I ain't got that much patience, but that's not my mission in life. And so that's his purpose. We let him, you know, work his purpose. Um, but the initial intent, from my understanding, was just to show the correlation, to show that, you know, for those who are Christians, that you cannot dismiss your African heritage because of the biblical tradition argues you should. And that, you know, certain ideas that you think are exclusive to Hebrews and that are direct uh, concepts from God are in fact not direct concepts and rules from Yahweh, but retentions from earlier African traditions. And to an extent, some things are borrowings from other African traditions. And, and so I did an analysis and I discovered that the word Amen 
in the word Nyame, where we get the word Nzambe, and where we get the word zombie from in English, um, gives way to the word Yahweh. And, you know, for some people that may not be important, but for historians, that's very significant. Because, again, by the, the nature of the sound laws and the way that the direction in which sounds mutate, we can tell that it's from Africa to Israel and not the other way around. And, and so it, it, it loosens, it's a small loose effort, but it loosens the grip and the idea that you can totally divorce the Hebrew people and traditions from African people and traditions. Now, there's some fundamental differences in terms of the thought process, but, uh, and then of course, there's the propaganda and nationalism of the Bible. But outside of that, they're doing everything that other indigenous African people do in terms of sacrifice, in terms of having a, uh, uh, a savior who's a son of God, who's actually a king, you know, um, you know, all of that is, it's, it's, you know, like, remember, uh, I said that I was a Hebrew Israelite. One of the things that we used to say is we ain't no damn Africans, you know, them dang African booty scratches and stuff like that. That used to be our mantra, or at least to be my mantra within the, on uh, the thing. They still kind of hold that belief. And, but when you start doing the knowledge, you can't separate them. And so what we discover is that it's a, it's a group of disgruntled Egyptians, Egyptian citizens, I should say. Because around this time, you know, you have different groups moving into the Delta. And these disgruntled citizens of Egypt move into um, Canaan, which is another multi-ethnic, multi-genetic polity. There is no Samaritan, excuse me, there is no Phoenician, like a single genetic folks. It's kind of like the United States. It's just a multiplicity of folks in that area. It's just really kind of a merchant nation state. And, you know, they adopt the Phoenician language. And it dialect, it, it forms a dialect over time. And they separate and try to create their own culture. It's a mixed multitude, just as they said in the text. However, they went and lied talking about God commanded them to ransack Canaan and that they went over there and took over all the land and committed genocide. No, they walked over there and settled like everybody else did. Mm -hmm. But even Phoenicia was heavily influenced by ancient Egypt. Yep. And at one time, was a, they, they moved at the time that it was a colony of Egypt. Yep. Ugarit from Ugarit come all the way down. Yep, 1800 BC. Yep. You know, so it's, you know, it's like, you know, history says one thing, and then, of course, the propaganda says another. But there's some truth to the ideas in there, and that is that there are mixed people. There's not a, 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 a homogeneous, you know, genetic group. They're a mixed multitude, which is why you have certain you know, aspects of the culture that mirror Indo-Europeans and their thought process, 
And then you have some that mirrors the Negro Egyptian speakers because it's, a, it's the mix of Negro Egyptian speakers with other indigenous folks in that region that gives birth to Semitic in general. And then especially with the Hebrews who tell you themselves as a mixed multitude. All right. Hey, listen, man, I'm going to call it a day. I'm going to call it a show. And, and Asar, man, we appreciate you coming on, brother. Wanna, um, I don't know how your schedule is. I know you got to go to work. Uh -huh. uh, next week, I don't know how your schedule is. Um, so everybody who um, have linguistic questions, put them in my box. And we're going to get another class, man, just depending on, on, on Asar's schedule. You know, because this was uh -huh. a class today. I'm going to listen to this mm -hmm. right now. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm I'm take your job, sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, ne next time I'm a, I'll try to have some powerpoints. All right, you know, prepare. So I didn't know hey, the, the exact wow. direction of today, so I didn't have to prepare. Do you have something on your channel about the whole Osiris connection to Jesus? Because I know you are. I think I saw something online with you with that before. Yeah, it's it's old. It was based on a debate I had. Mm -hmm. you know in san antonio way back in like 2009. all right cool and so uh is it on the channel it it should be it's only like part of it um but even still like a lot of my views have changed right and a lot of uh uh I, the fundamental core is still the same but my evidence for it has changed okay you know, the, the the core is still the same but my evidence for demonstrated is is different now and so, and so that was 2009. That's um, seven years ago. All right. Cool. So, <laughs> all right. Peace, peace and love to you, Asar. Appreciate you, brother. And I'm sure appreciate you for having me. <laughs> yes, sir. And um, Alan Brown, peace and love, brother. Uh, peace. Is there any, any last questions or comments? Please. When you going to debate Wesley Muhammad in the public? Yeah. Uh, that uh, you know that just depends on him. And so what I'm waiting on. Because he wrote a response to my two articles that I wrote in my 2013 book, Illusion. And he wrote two articles, but he said there was going to be a third one. So I'm waiting for his third one to do a response because I don't want to make an, uh, a, a, another, I don't want to make a reply without understanding fully all of his evidence. So he has two articles out, but it's, he said it was two of three. So until he releases that third one, you know, uh, but then I, you know, I would want to do it, but I would still want to do it based on, cause I'm working on the book as well okay. you know, on the subject. And so that'll be a good time to release the book. Not necessarily saying that, you know, well, I guess in the same vein, it would be, you know, using the opportunity to promote the book, but yeah. not, not necessarily to promote the book, but so that the people can see my full argument. What about in, in, um, in paper form? What about a dialogue with Christopher Eric? I mean, we can have that, but it's, it's, it's really no point. You know, he's already had these dialogues with some of our top linguists. Hmm. You know, like say, everybody knows the 1974 debate uh, with Shekhanta Diop and uh, Theophala Wabinga with the top Egyptologists at the time. But there was also a, a kind of a mini debate in Barcelona, Spain in 1996. Mm. And who was there? Mubabinge Bilolo, Dr. James, excuse me, Dr. Alan Anselin, and uh, Dr. Theofalo Wabinga. And from the, the testimony of those who were there is that 
Theophile Wabinga made uh, Christopher Eric, you know, admit that there was no basis for the Afro-Asiatic language family. When he later, he later reneged on that. But you got to understand that in 1995, he already wrote a full book arguing for the reconstruction of Afro-Asiatic. So, you know, he really couldn't fully go back because he's put all his work in on that hypothesis, on that theory. And so, um, but from those who were there, that's what they, they said. That he, he, he had to admit, given the evidence presented by uh, Dr. Theophila Wabinga, that this idea of an Afro-Asiatic language phylum was unscientific. Mm. All right, brother. Let's end it right. there. We continue next week. Peace and love, man. I appreciate you. One love to everybody. Thanks for listening. Okay. Spread the word, man. Sundays is all about the Dagger Squad. Peace.